Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. The Warner Archive Podcast is back, and today we're back with nine, nine exciting new releases coming to the market to the very first time. The first is in a, I would say, a bold shade of blue as we have Showdown in Little Tokyo starring Brandon Lee and Dolph Lundgren from 1991 arriving on Blu-ray for the very first time from the Warner Archive collection and then going about as different as you can get, a fascinating documentary slash melodrama shot on location in Alaska called Eskimo from MGM in 1933, directed by the great W.S. Van Dyke. And then we have five films starring Wallace Beery and his frequent co-star Marjorie Maine. And all of them begin with B except for one. So we have Barnacle Bill from 1941, The Bugle Sounds from 1942, Jackass Mail from 1942. That's the one that doesn't begin with B. Bad Bascom from 1946 with Margaret O'Brien and Big Jack from 1949. All new to DVD for the very first time, all new to home video for the very first time, and all remastered just for this release, as in fact were Eskimo and Showdown in Little Tokyo for their releases. Now we move on to a collection of 12 movies within a release. So it's one new release with 12 movies across four discs with three movies on each disc, And it features that singing Warner Brothers cowboy Dick Foran in the Dick Foran Western collection. The films included are Moonlight on the Prairie, Song of the Saddle, Treachery Rides the Range, Trailin' West, California Mail, Guns of the Picos, Land Beyond the Law, The Cherokee Strip, Blazing Sixes, Empty Holsters, The Devil's Saddle Legion, and last but certainly not least, Prairie Thunder. And then we move into the world of animation, and we have answered the watch cry by saying, yes, it's true, Centurions have returned as we begin the animated series, not the miniseries that we released previously, but the animated series itself, part one with 30 episodes of Centurions from 1985. Let's get the discussion started with Showdown in Little Tokyo, our latest Warner Archive Collection Blu-ray. One of my favorite parts of this film, besides the incredible kung fu action and team-up, is the, I'd say it's the star of this, is Little Tokyo itself in Los Angeles, because it was a neighborhood that was mostly filled with Japanese until World War II, when they were deported to camps. Then it was rebuilt, and then we have this action film. I know I just had to get in with the history, Dan, because I just love this little it's neighborhood. It's an important part of history and a, and a shameful, heartbreaking part of, of our country's history. But it also gives a perspective to that part of Los Angeles that a lot of people are not familiar with like they would be, let's say, Chinatown. Yeah, it's, it's true. And actually, at Water Village. Uh, since this film was filmed <laughs> at Water Village, yeah. <laughs> I had to throw that in. Speaking of stars, we should mention both uh, Dolph Lundgren and Brandon Lee are the stars of this film. What's interesting and fun about the film is that they're culturally swapped. Yes. For people that perhaps didn't have HBO in the 90s and are unfamiliar with Showdown in Little Tokyo. The hook is that Dolph 
is the child of the East and Brandon is the child of the Valley. And so Dolph is a very serious, very almost dour martial artist who grew up in Japan and Brandon Lee plays the half-Caucasian Valley transplant who has also studied martial arts but is is much lighter and much less serious and actually their buddy cop pairing is really the the highlight of this as well as of course the rayon shirts worn by the villains and the beautiful leading lady Tia Carrera. This is right before Wayne's World, right? By a few years. Yeah, literally. And if you look up uh, Dolph Lundgren on the Facebook, he actually has a nice little album of memories from shooting this film and reminiscences of Brandon and Tia. Well, it is shocking to believe this, but it is true. I actually saw this when it came out in the theater, (laughs) and not a lot of people did because this only opened in, I think, about 300 theaters. It didn't have a very wide release back in 1991. And this is a film that didn't really have much of an audience in the theater, but over time, thanks to cable television and more importantly, home video, video cassette, and then Mm -hmm. DVD, it certainly became far better known than it did in the theaters. Uh, Mark Lester, who is the director, also directed Commando, and Commando is a you know, video store Sorry, classic. I lied. And this is Mark L. Lester, not to be confused yes. with the titular Oliver of 1968. <laughs> this is really a great, fun, I would say it's one of those so bad that it's good movies. I think it oh, really does fall it, into that category. It, well, kind of what's fun now, if you go to Little Tokyo, it's very sedate. There's a Japanese-American museum, an art museum. But in this, when you drive up to Little Tokyo, there's a fight club right there. People getting kicked out. You know, there are fires, gunfights in the middle of the street. And, you know, the way we release our Warner Archive Blu-rays is we just take a title, put it on a dart, and see where it hits the wall. (laughs) Because we just don't know anything about movies. The secret's out, folks. This is how we do it, and that's why we release Showdown Little Tokyo. Elvis Costello has a spinning songbook. We have a spinning release book. I I thought this was because it was time for one from the letter S. Well, we just don't. They thought that would be it, too, because certain people just are continually trying to figure out what we're doing and they're flummoxed when the truth of it is yeah there is a method to the madness there is a different audience for every different kind of film and we're here to provide different films for different audiences there are a lot of people who were thrilled that we were releasing this film on blu-ray and and this film is of blu-ray quality right this is a brand new master it looks tremendous it's in its proper aspect ratio and it is in the glorious sonics of ultra stereo Mm. which was a slightly um budgetary version of Dolby Stereo that was popular in the late 80s and early 90s for lower budget movies. But this is not a film where you say, oh, my God, we have to remix it to (laughs) 5.1. We have presented it as it was originally released. It probably looks the best that it ever has. And the response to the disc has been tremendous, and we're very grateful for that. So if you want to have a lot of fun over 78 minutes and 20 seconds, we recommend Showdown in Little Tokyo. And and I'm totally serious about the rayon shirts. I had sort of forgotten about them, but you just, they are so colorful. Now, we go for a very different kind of ethnicity and a very different kind of storytelling because this is very serious storytelling. It's very groundbreaking. In the 1920s, filmmaker Robert Flaherty went north 
and made a documentary about Eskimos called Nanook of the North that was kind of revolutionary because no one had taken a camera up there mm -hmm. and filmed the lies of those people. It was MGM in an unusual move for a major studio that funded the making of Eskimo in 1933. And this film basically tells the story of Eskimo people as well as some of the non-native North Americans. Yes. And uh, it is directed by W.S. Van Dyke of so many movie fames, but around this time is the same time that he did The Thin Man. I mean, he was a dependable, wonderful MGM director, but this film is very atypical of yeah, the kind of things well, he did. But he was also doing films of, of like Polynesia. You know, the, he was like purposely in sort of a National Geographic kind of way. Absolutely. Going and finding these exotic settings and, you know, having a drama occur there. But of course, nobody had thought about going to the north. There weren't palm trees. It wasn't idyllic in any way. And as you could see from this film, because they really did film the actual people who were living in the northernmost part of Alaska at the time, they lived in primitive you know, conditions. And, and really, Alaska didn't begin to modernize until after World War II. And we have remastered this. This is the first home video release. It's the first video master of the film created in 25 years. And one of the problems we ran into when we were mastering it was we found these strange white anomalies on some of the scenes huh. where it looked like the image had cracked or something. And it really was not fixable through digital restoration. And we found out that because of the cold temperatures, uh, while the film was wow. being made, that actually the film Cracked was directly affected the by the temperatures. Froze, huh? And that's the way the film was made. So the day the film opened, those marks, these strange marks that I had never seen, didn't look like nitrate deterioration or decomposition. It was really bizarre, and uh, we checked with several lab experts, and they reported that this would be due to the filming conditions under which the movie was made. And uh, it doesn't take away from your enjoyment of the movie, and it only happens on a few shots. But we had never seen it before, and that's the reason why. So a little bit of uh, behind-the-scenes interest for you celluloid fans and freaks out there. Now, just to make it clear for those who aren't familiar with this film, because I wasn't until we no. took it on, as much as we emphasize the interesting docu part of it, it's really the drama is outstanding. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a love story, and it is a story of culture class. Yeah, this is a sweeping, giant Shakespearean saga about... Mala, played by stuntman and performer Richard Mala, who really undergoes one heck of a dark odyssey in his attempts to understand the ways of the visitors to his shores. He has to, he travels 500 miles by sled to go to a frozen in ship to get trade goods, but in that process, not only corrupts himself, but his family. Nowadays, people see, you know, these reality shows on National Geographic or the History Channel about, you know, wild Alaskan this or that. Or, this is the real thing, folks. It's not, you know, well, doctored. There are a few shots that are, you know, done in the studio later. That's true. And while almost all of the actors, except for the white people, were played and by... And the wives. There were, you know, played by natives... 
there were two professional actors in them. Mala himself was an actor, and then his wife was played by a Japanese-Hawaiian. Both wives were professional oh. Asian actors. Oh, they were? Okay. Yeah. And, of course, the right. three Mounties. Yes, they were. Yeah. yeah. Even though it was shot in Alaska, it's called Eskimo. Oh, it was and what's interesting in is the very villainous whaling trader oh, yeah. uh, was actually played by the man that wrote the two books that this movie was based on. That's yeah. the author of the books. Yeah, it's not a very sympathetic portrayal of uh, civilization. Of Anglo exploitation no. of Native peoples? No. That's no. the <laughs> beauty of it. And I don't mean that to be facetious. I mean, I think that it takes risks in showing that life isn't, you know, and it's, again, it's before the code. Yes. Uh, and it's life, very much pre Life is not all uh, lollipops and roses. Ice and cream. it isn't a shiny Hollywood experience. The way it was marketed was you'll get to experience parts of the world you've never seen before and you never will probably see in your lifetime. So unless you want to put on some snowshoes and go slushing, you know, or whatever, right. you're not going to see this. So it was uh, quite well received at its time, but it's been forgotten and we've brought it back. So we highly recommend Eskimo. Now, MGM may have made these occasional forays into alternative filmmaking. They were most at home with their stars who were reliable and who fit certain characters or leading lady or leading men roles. And we have a leading man who was a character, Wallace Beery. He was in so many MGM movies and right up until his death and we have his last movie in this group of films. And in this group of films, he is teamed with Marjorie Maine, who is actually much younger than he, but I think it was an attempt by the studio to try to pair him off as he had been with Marie Dressler in films such as Min and Bill and Tugboat Annie, and that relationship was terminated by Marie Dressler's untimely death. So in Marjorie Maine, they had a young woman who looked like an older woman, and she was playing character parts from her entry into the cinema. And she runs the gamut in these films from co-star to supporting player. She, she has both kinds of roles. But I think they made seven films together, mm -hmm. and this represents five of the seven. They follow some similar patterns. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Especially the earlier one. It's usually Wallace Beery is a corrupt character who is tempered by a combination of Maidry Main and usually a child or somebody who is childlike. The first is Barnacle Bill from 1941, and if you only think of Barnacle Bill from Popeye cartoons, you'll, you'll think of it differently <laughs> after you see this film. He's a fisherman in this one, and not a great or, let's say, uh, well-motivated fisherman. And Marjorie Maine uh, works at the tackle shop, I guess, uh, as a supplier, and he is very much in debt to her. She helps him out. It's sort of, there's a long-standing promise of marriage. And then a little kid comes in, the daughter who he never realized he had. Now he's got to live up to a new expectation. Barnacle Bill is an absolute delight. The next film, The Bugle Sounds, reflects a time it was made, and that is the beginning of World War II. And this is a call to action. It's very much a patriotic propaganda, get ready right. for the conflict. Get ready. But... 
the plot for this was surprising to me for a Wallace Berry film because about halfway through, you find out you're watching an Abbott and Costello movie. It definitely had that feel because it is about uh, Wallace Beery is a long time going back to World War One cavalry officer. And actually, this is historically true in the United States. Around 1940, they began phasing out the cavalry, creating a mobile infantry, replacing them with tanks. So man by his horse against a tank. But kids, before you think that's all there is to it. There are saboteurs in the background. Of course there are. And it really takes an old cavalry master to root out the saboteurs. The next one, which is Jack S. Mail, which was also made in 1942, puts Wallace Beery back in a more Western theme. With orphans. It's ironic that Wallace Beery was so often teamed with children. He made a lot of films with Jackie Cooper in the early 30s, starting with The Champ. Treasure Island. Like an incredible oh, yeah. thing. Treasure sorry, Island, sorry, O'Shaughnessy's yeah. Boy, so many films. But in reality, he hated children. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the child actors who grew up talk about how awful he was to work with on the set. You know, he was just not very patient with kids. So you know, I, but you it, never get that from watching the movies. You but don't, but you kind of, because you get that beginning part, because when the kid always shows up, it's just like the worst thing that could happen to him. And in Jackass Male, he's a, a criminal, and he Major Maine uh, sort of uh, shanghais him into delivering mail by coach, essentially, right before the train is being built. And then there's a little kid. Yeah, he's planning on being a bushwhacker only to end up finding bushwhackers <laughs> and then fighting the bushwhackers. Yeah. And then orphaning the son of a bushwhacker, which he then takes under his way. son of a bushwhacker. And, of course, he doesn't ever want the kid to find out that he killed his pa. Right. And he is paired up with the very treacherous Jay Carroll Nash yeah. in his very treacherous sidekick bad guy stage. Next, we have 1946's Bad Bascom, and Wallace shares the screen with a very big scene-stealer who was a very little girl, and that, of course, was Margaret O'Brien, she being one of the biggest stars on the MGM lot at the time. So only little Margaret O'Brien could tame Wallace Beery, <laughs> and that's why they were teamed together. And, of course, there's Marjorie Maine along for the ride. This is my favorite of the five films. Yes, it's, it's a really good full movie. It's also historically interesting because it is one of the first positive portrayals of Mormons in Hollywood. He's an outright killer in this one, and he... Not as much as J. Carroll Nash. <laughs> well, okay. But he also reforms, and he reforms when he hides out among these uh, Mormons who are going out to Utah, and in hiding out with them, with Major Maine and Margaret O'Brien, he uh, turns over a new leaf. This one is definitely good. It, it's a great deal of fun. It has a superlative ending. And speaking of superlative endings, oh. the superlative ending to Wallace Beery's screen career was the last film he made before his death and released in early 1949, Big Jack. It kind of defines his irascible screen personality. And what an interesting plot. I mean, you <laughs> don't really yes. see many early 19th century American highwayman pictures. It's a western, but it takes place early. And Chi in Virginia. Yeah, and the child, right, in Virginia, which was in the, the western West Virginia. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. And, and no, not to George. And the uh, or Thomas. And the child part is uh, played by a grave robbing doctor. Richard Conti. 
who saves Big Jack's life and then essentially becomes adopted by Big Jack, much to his consternation. Okay, so if you want to play, you know, three degrees of separation or two degrees of separation, you know, how do you connect Al Pacino to to Wallace Berry? It's Richard Conti, uh-huh. Godfather. <laughs> Come on! I was going to make it happen with Victor Frankenstein. There you go. Because, you know, that's, grave robbing doctor. That's Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Please. But anyway, Big Jack 1949. This was MGM's last film with Wallace Berry. They couldn't make any more with him because he had passed away. But uh, actually, his passing was mourned by the Metro lot because he had been there for over 20 years. Uh-huh. And... Uh, Despite the fact that he didn't particularly get along that well with children, he was well-liked by his adult peers and was a very much beloved member of the MGM family and loved by audiences. His career went back to the earliest silent days, I mean, down to the teens. It really was like the breadth of the studio system at its height. Absolutely. You just think of the duration of his career and how he was in all those early talkies. A lot of the films we've talked about here, like The Secret Six and The Big House. I mean, and that was, The Big House was almost, you know, uh, 20 years before Big Jack, 19 years. You know, I mean, so much growth that we've seen. And this is what the Warner Archive Collection provides is an opportunity to trace somebody's career from one point to another. And all five of these films kind of have been languishing as things you could only see looking awful on television. So... We decided to remaster them and package them lovingly, and now they're all available. So Wallace Beery and Marjorie Maine together in five of the seven films they made together at MGM, all now available from the Warner Archive collection. Next, we have a lesser-known screen star who made lots of dramatic non-Western movies, and he made a lot of comedies. But in the middle of making all those films, since he was under contract here at Warner Brothers, the powers that be decided that he should make hour-long westerns as a singing cowboy. And so we have the Dick Foran Western Collection, which spans from 1935 to 37 and includes 12, count them 12, remastered western delights, all of which are filled with songs, action, suspense, and downright sagebrush western fun. So I'll again go through the list of titles which I mentioned earlier. We had Moonlight on the Prairie from 1935, Song of the Saddle from 1936, Treachery Rides the Rain from 1936, Trail West from 1936, California Mail from 1936. As you can see, they made these fairly <laughs> often. Guns of the Picos from 1937, Land Beyond the Law from 1937, The Cherokee Strip from 1937, Blazing Sixes from 1937, Empty Holsters from 1937, The Devil's Saddle Legion, from 1937, and the last, also from 1937, Prairie Thunder. So in the middle of all of this, he also did other movies, and he also made a Technicolor two-reel special that we have included on a previous collection of Warner Brothers shorts, and we've collected it here as well, presented it here as a little extra bonus. You get to see Dick Ferran in in Technicolor. He is known for having been in movies such as Brother Rat and various other films at Warner Brothers in the 1930s and early 40s. But one of the things he's most famous for among film buffs is a blooper 
that exists from one of these West, Warner Brothers Westerns where he was trying to get up on his horse and he just couldn't make it. And he says, I can't get my ass in the air. And that was shown at the yearly Hollywood party that the Warner <laughs> Studio Club used to have every year in January where they would review the year's bloopers. And that Dick Foran blooper was so popular that it was repeated in every <laughs> real year after year after year. And they're called the breakdowns of 1936, breakdowns of 1937, breakdowns of 1938, and so forth. Those blooper reels have become legendary because they've been circulating for so long and are available as enhanced content from the source itself, from us, uh, on many of our DVDs. But the way that most people know Dick Ferran is not from his body of work, but from his blooper. <laughs> so we decided to give the man a little bit of dignity and honor by taking these wonderful Westerns, putting them all together in a new collection that we've remastered. And a lot of work went into these films because a lot of these film elements had been touched in over 50 years. Now, we've released the collections of the monogram uh, yes. westerns, and, and that's very similar. And this isn't the first singing cowboy that we've talked about Right, either. but it's the first Warner Brothers singing cowboy. And to me, what the big difference is here is we have a trailer for each one of these films. That's right. And that's uh, pretty special because you could tell that a lot of these were made at the same time, but these trailers are like bang, boom. Made and remade because these films recycle many of the elements previously right. used with Ken Maynard and then with John Wayne and now with Dick Ferran. Right. It's basically just the way Monogram would recycle yep. stories that Johnny Mac Brown would have done what, you know, Addison Randall would have done in the 30s. I mean, there were only so many stories, but there was a decided effort at Warner Brothers to make movies that were second halves of double features that were B pictures that would fill up a bill that had an A picture, a B picture, some cartoons, some shorts, a travelogue, a newsreel. You'd spend a Warner night at the movies, a night at the movies from any studio basically in their presentation of movies. So. These films serve that purpose of being the second half of a double feature, but then they also had a second life as Saturday morning kids matinee films that could be rented by theaters for very little money and be a nice babysitter for the children along with other films because they were only between 50 and 60 minutes in length. But they haven't really been given any attention or care and we've done just that. So needless to say, these are not only their DVD debut, but their home video debut. And they're really, I think, a great deal of fun and present a boatload of famous character actors that you'll recognize from both A and B pictures. So anyway, we heartily recommend the Dick Foran Western Collection. And for those of you who've been asking us, yes, there are more Western collections on the Ooh. way from other cowboys. So keep your cowboy hat on your head and uh, keep your head low and keep your eyes on the lookout for our next Western collection. But meanwhile, grab this. The entertainment value is high for children of all ages. Is it going to be a Warner Brothers Western or no. another studio? Another studio. All right. Well, but another studio. I just like those. Output we own. I just like those little hints. Yeah. 
Well, I, it's time to move on to television. Television. Power Extreme. So those of you who have loyally burdened our mailboxes and our social media sites with requests to finally release the episodes of The Centurions, which we teased with the five-episode miniseries a couple of years ago, your wish has been granted. We have part one, the first 30 episodes of Centurions, the animated series, and we hope it was worth the wait. It took a lot of time to get it together, make it look beautiful, but now it's available and the fans can own it and have it looking spanking new. So this one is like similar to GoBots in that there was a five-episode miniseries right. and then a direct order went in to make 60, and so that's why we have 30, right? Right. It's like and then like the next 30 will be in Volume 2, which we have no date for, but which will be following in relatively short order, which will be too long a wait for a lot of the fans. (laughs) Dan, could you explain to the people who the Centurions are? They're masters of the land, sea and air. Mm -hmm. They have been recruited by Crystal Kane up in Sky Vault, who has Mm -hmm. turned them voluntarily into cyborgs who uh, can not only teleport, but, but can summon the special machine parts they need to face the challenge at hand. It also makes accessorizing your toy collection more interesting. Hmm. I think we've mentioned this before, but it never hurts to call out some of the greats. Some of the -the behind-the-scenes folk that worked on this cartoon were uh, Gil Kane, which Mm -hmm. is very clear in the character design, and uh, Jack Kirby, which is very clear in the machine design. Yes. But what's also interesting to me about Centurions is the Masters of Land, Sea, and Air are very reminiscent of Kirby's own comic, Challenges of the Unknown, which had a very similar setup. And you can sort of see later on sort of this riff still in the air about him sort of putting together these globe-trotting daredevils with different specialties. And with the different specialties, actually, they're differentiated personally as well. Yes. I mean, they all have awesome mustaches, number one, but each contribute a different way of uh, coming into an adventure. Uh, one of my favorites, and I think, Dan, we, we both talked about this, was the one where the villain got a woman to compose a song. Whale song. A whale song on a Jules Verne-esque organ. Written by noted comic scribe and Law & Order producer Jerry Conway. (laughs) Where she commands the whales of the world to not only attack the Euro Bridge, which is... The bridge between England and France that had just been completed. This takes place in the near future, folks, and there's there's a bad guy named Doc Terror who, yes, is a terrorist, and he has a psychic named Hacker, and they are evil cyborgs. Didn't we release four seasons of Doc Terror? No, (laughs) Doc Terror! Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I should mention that these episodes of Centurions, and the reason why there were 60 of them in addition to the five miniseries episodes that preceded them, These were part of a 1980s phenomenon of product that was created for first-run strip syndication. What that means is that Monday through Friday, local stations would get these episodes and play them for the children, and they'd get about enough for 12 or 13 weeks' worth of product and then just keep recycling and recycling and recycling. And a lot of it was product that the stations would get for free because there were ads already in the programs from sponsors. So the the local station got to put in their ads 
for two or three minutes, and the rest of it was all pre-sold. So this was a phenomenon of the 80s that got eliminated by the proliferation of judge shows and cheaper programming. Wow, cheaper than free. It wasn't exactly free, but the the point is it was low-cost programming, but there was a great deal of cost put into making the shows, and unfortunately they did not continue. But uh, Challenge of the Gobots and Centurions are an example of that first-run syndication programming, which was involving producers as well as advertising agencies. So it was a, it was a part of the entertainment industry that no longer exists, and it's kind of fascinating. The other thing we should mention about Centurions is that when these episodes originally aired, and the show was produced on film, but uh, transferred to the then popular mode known as one-inch videotapes. On those one-inch videotapes, there were public service announcements at the end of the episodes. Now, when the films were preserved, they did not preserve the public service announcements. So the public service announcements only exist on very poor quality one-inch videotapes. So there are some fans who have contacted us with their dismay that the public service announcements are not part of our release, but the reason they're not part of our release was they were not retained on the negative for the digital masters that were subsequently created from the film elements. So you never know, we might be able to dig some up for part two, it's not a promise, but we are aware of the issue and we decided to go for high quality versus public service announcements. So it's not a choice that everybody agrees with, but we have to give you the best possible quality and we've done so with centurions and uh, we certainly hope that won't take away from your enjoyment we're sure that it won't take away from your enjoyment in owning and collecting these shows and in the hopes for the fans to uh, also be able to deliver some hopefully well-received news we have gone into these episodes and attempted to correct some broadcast order continuity Mm -hmm. errors so when you watch them you'll watch the story unfold especially in volume two in a different way than aired, in a way which we hope, you think, makes much more sense. Because we actually followed what the creative team intended in the story arc. Yes. When George was talking about how these shows were distributed in these blocks and, and how they'd get, nobody really cared the stations at the time. Would run the stations anything. didn't care. The, yeah. the creators cared. Yeah, and that's, that's cared. what I mean. Yeah. And, you know, like Dan went through this, you know, very carefully to try to correct some anomalies because, you know, if a city is destroyed in one episode, you don't want it spontaneously regenerating in another. We care that much. So speaking of caring, we have a caring group of colleagues over on the lot that are tending to our wondrous soundtrack assets, specifically the soundtracks created for some of the older classics in our library. And I was lucky to be involved with the creation of the compact discs of a lot of these many, many years ago. But now a lot of them, which have been out of print, are resurfacing again digitally and, big sigh, on vinyl. And uh, they are coming from Water Tower Records, our music record division that releases Harry Potter soundtracks and all sorts of new soundtracks. But they're also dedicating a line to the classic soundtracks from the library, and we're very honored that they have chosen to brand them Warner Archive Records. Yeah, they've got a whole whole big lineup coming up, but today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, an American in Paris 
the motion picture soundtrack. Well, this is a very timely release because in America Paris, which of course everybody out there knows, won the Best Picture Oscar in 1951. Uh, no mean feat competing against films like A Place in the Sun, Streetcar Named Desire, Quo Vadis, etc. was a great year for movies. But An American Paris was a groundbreaking film directed by Vincent Minnelli, produced by Arthur Freed, starring Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron, and featuring the music of George Gershwin and his lovely wife, Ira. That's an old joke. No, actually, his brother, Ira. The George and Ira Gershwin score, a screenplay by Alan J. Lerner, amazing musical direction by Johnny Green and Saul Chaplin, winner of the Best Picture Oscar, as well as I think a total of six Oscars altogether. America Paris was groundbreaking because it had a ballet at the end of the film that was unlike anything anybody had ever seen. People thought they were crazy to attempt to make this movie mm -hmm. and have a 16-minute ballet at the end of the movie, and they walked away with the Oscar. So here's to them. And the music is wonderful. Songs like It's Wonderful and I Got Rhythm and Love Is Here To Stay, which Gene Kelly sings to Leslie Caron as they dance along the Seine. It's got an enormous amount of musical pleasures. And this album really captures all of it in a sonic form. You can close your eyes and imagine the movie. But you can now see the Broadway musical too, That's right? That's right. That's why I said it's very timely because on Broadway right now is a very different but yet has its roots in the work mm -hmm. Broadway musical adaptation of the movie. And the movie itself was based on George Gershwin's tone poem that he wrote mm -hmm. in 1928 in America and Paris, it's not a symphony, or it's called a tone poem, but it's an orchestral piece. And uh, Gene Kelly had the idea of being able to choreograph the musical numbers based against backdrops that were based on the works of various different artists. So new talents have come in and reimagined the basic story of an American Paris for this new Broadway musical and have not tried to recreate the movie, but to do something new and totally different. And it's wonderful that these talented artists are keeping the music of Gershwin alive for new generations. Right, and you know, it just keeps coming back. And you know, something that was first conceived in 1928, really 90 years ago, still uh, influencing people and still bringing in the audience. So there aren't that many songs in the film itself, and they're probably twice the amount of Gershwin songs in the Broadway musical. But the songs and a lot of the underscore make up the soundtrack recording, which was carefully restored and remastered from the original MGM studio pre-recordings. And now that is back in print, thanks to our friends at Warner Tower and the Warner Archive Records label. So look for it at your favorite e-tailer or maybe even retailer if you're buying a vinyl copy and pick up the soundtrack of An American Paris from Water Tower. Well, we have some letters to read Oh, now. let's hear what people have to say. And we do have a new address, which I will read to you now. If you send us your letter, we will read it on the air. Please send it to Warner Archive Podcast, B160-4. Four. 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 Just one four. 
3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. Our first letter is from the South Pacific. The return address does say Gilligan's Island, and it is from Airmail. All right. This and is, it comes in one of those uh, really cool envelopes with that neat kind of smooth paper. It's probably from the same person who sent us the uh, letter in a bottle. Well, you know, you can try sending a message in a bottle or by air. It doesn't, it doesn't matter as long as it gets here. Dear sirs, I bought this. What happened to Gilligan's planet? Oh, and he, uh, the new adventures of Gilligan, a.k.a. Gilligan's new adventures from Willie. Oh, he says, I bought this, and he's pointing, and he's pointing to Gilligan's to, planet. Yes. So the story is the new adventures of Gilligan will be coming from the Warner Archive collection Whoa. when it's ready. That's the end of the story. We have to face element problems with various things, and sometimes it takes us five, in, yeah. or in certain cases longer, six years to get something out because we have film element problems, clearance issues. In this case, we don't have clearance issues. We just want to bring you beautiful-looking discs and have the new adventures of Gilligan delight you for 26 episodes so still on our radar still in the planning stages we can't tell you when it's coming because we don't know ourselves i was trying to explain to somebody how sometimes especially with television and especially animated how much longer it takes to reassemble these releases because not only weren't they kept well but like when we were talking about uh improperly preserved and and one has to take into consideration that our colleagues who work so hard on the technical side, when you have 26 episodes of a television series, that's 26 different assets of picture, 26 different assets of sound, each of which could be fine or could have problems. And usually there's always problems. (laughs) So um, the new Adventures of Gilligan will be coming for the fans who want more of Mr. and Mrs. Howell. All right, this comes from Jimmy from Alabama. It's an 8x10, and it is, it's hard to read, but it looks like that's a picture of of, uh, the cast of Alice on an airplane. Vera is worried that Warner Archive will never release seasons 5 through 9 of Alice on DVD. So are we. Yeah. Thanks, Vera. We're trying our best. It's due to circumstances out of our control. We have got some issues that we need to iron out before we can move forward with future releases of Alice. We certainly want to do so, and we know the audiences are there. Wish us luck, and we thank you for your support. Yeah, you write them, we'll answer them. So we shouldn't let a podcast go by by letting you know about our streaming service, Warner Archive Instant, where you can watch hundreds and hundreds of movies, hundreds and hundreds of hours of television shows, and you're not a movie lover unless you subscribe to Warner Archive Instant, which you can try for free can subscribe for a whole month for free simply by going to instant.warnerarchive.com and signing up today. You can watch on your PC, your Mac, your Roku, your Roku stick, your iPad, and you can use your iPad to stream with AirPlay to your Apple TV. And if you use Roku or iPad slash Apple TV, you can watch much of the content in 1080p. HD and Warner Archive is the only place, the Warner Archive streaming service, Warner Archive Instant, the only place where you can see a lot of this content in 1080p HD. Get your membership going today. Try it for a month, and once you try it, you're going to want more. 
That wraps up this week's Warner Archive Collection podcast, but we'll be back. I'm George Feltenstein. I'm Matthew Patterson. Whales are intelligent, friendly creatures. I know. I've worked with them. Thanks for listening and look forward to the next Warner Archive podcast.